Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. If you have a Bible, can you turn with me in the book of Luke? chapter 19, and if you, you know, you can also access our digital sermon card via the U app, U version app, and you can follow us along. So Luke chapter 19, verses 1 and 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because it was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was passing that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Praise Jesus. I would like to start with a question this morning. How many baptisms, how many people should we see baptized each year in a church like this? In a given year, calendar year, how many people in a church like ours should we see baptized in a year? Some of you, you you come from Christian traditions in which numbers were abused, and you are not even comfortable with that question. You feel it, right? I would just challenge you, the book of Acts will not be fun for you to read. Some of you are like, I, I, I was lonely in COVID, Pastor Craig, and look, I'm just glad I finally found a connect group and like some people that I halfway have something in common with. I've not really thought about that question of baptism. Like, life is good relationally right now. Some of you are like, aren't you getting paid to do this? Like, what do you do in this community? You're the professional Christian. Whose job is it? Some of you are like, I'm not really sure, but I love the prayer culture, man. Like, woo, Tuesday nights, I can't find another church that does all-night prayer. Like, I'm loving some prayer culture. Some of you are like, I don't know really if I thought about the baptisms, but growth phases? Man, that was like the first time in my life where like I really began to grow spiritually. But I want to ask the question, how many baptisms should a church like ours see each year. So Jesus, in what he calls the Great Commission text, this series we called Missions March, The With God Life. The with God is because we are in a co-mission. Co means with operating, with mission. Cooperation, cooperate with, operate with, cooperation. Co-mission is Jesus is given a, a mission 
And he's now inviting us to be with him in that mission. That's the Great Commission. And so Jesus, before he ascends to the Father, says these words in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. He said, hey, all authority has been given to me, authority in heaven and earth. You, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Watch this. Baptizing. There's baptism. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you to the very end of the age. This is called the Great Commission. Make disciples. Go out and reach people. Right? Disciple them. Baptize them. Last year, our church baptized 10 people. Our church has a budget. budget praise God for those 10 people. Our church has a budget of $400,000. Each week, hundreds of people download these messages. There were 1,300 listens in the last seven days on our podcast. 1,300 listens. There's over 50,000 plays on our podcast alone. This is not anything else other than our podcast. There are 5.5 million people in metro Atlanta. Jesus has given us a command, and last year we baptized 10 people. Now, there are people in our church who are disproportionately care about these things. Now, there are some things, let me say, as the pastor of this church, that our church does really well. In fact, can I just say, we do a whole lot better than other churches in some areas. But in this area in 2021, we did not do better. So we're doing a series called Missions March, right? That's what this month is about. And it's about the with God life. And this is not about us in this month, like January. This is not about us seeking God. What is God? This is us creating space to say, what is God actually seeking? And Jesus tells us in this passage that God is seeking and saving the lost. This is at the heart of his purpose. It is safe to say, church, that this is not a peripheral issue for the Son of God. This is not a side issue for Jesus, but a central issue to Jesus. I think it's safe to say that, sadly, that in the drama of trying to get through all the challenges of 2020 and 2021... This command of Jesus got a bit lost, maybe, in our midst. Now you're like, Pastor Craig, coming in hot, man, on this third Sunday of March. Listen, I know, I know, listen to me, I know within our hearts this matters. I'm assuming that within your heart you desire to see people come and meet Jesus, to find freedom, to have forgiveness of sins, to have their shame taken away, to find a new identity in Jesus, to find uh, and discover their calling, to then to be deployed for their mark on the kingdom of God. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, why isn't that happening more often? Why isn't it happening more often? I think it's important to lean into this issue, by the way, as we approach the Easter season. Because this is Lenten season, right? This is when people have this kind of felt need in resurrection season to attend church or to be open to the things of the Spirit. So today, listen, church, it's just a really, I'm talk, when I say really simple, I'm talking a really simple message from a very familiar passage. But I want to talk about the lengths God will go to seek and save the lost. I want to share what actually happens when Jesus saves the lost. And then finally talk about how we in our lives right now in this place can help seek and save the lost in metro Atlanta. Now the context of the passage that Regine so beautifully read for us is where we find the links to which God will go to seek to save the lost. It opens in verse 1 where the text says Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Now at this point chronologically, let me catch us up to speed. Jesus is coming to the end of his larger teaching and healing ministry. In fact, he's coming down to the very wire 
He's moving towards the cross. If you look at this passage in context, you'll see another book of the Bible, another gospel says he has set his heart like flint on Calvary. Meaning he has one objective, the redemptive purpose he had came for. He has got his mind set towards going and enduring the shame of the cross. At the Passover, in the very near future, Jesus will become the Passover lamb that would deliver his people from Egypt, from slavery, right? He's on his way to go there. The road goes from the Jordan through Jericho to Jerusalem. If you know the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Bible says the road that came down from Jerusalem to Jericho because it is a descent. If you've ever done it, it's the biggest descent. You go from top of the mountain of Golgotha or what we call Calvary or what we call Jerusalem and then you descend all the way to the Dead Sea which is the lowest point on planet Earth in above water, correct? And in that place, the bromine solution's all in the air and people get really, really sleepy. And if you get all the way down to the Jordan, Jordan River, you'll see that over on your left is a huge city called Jericho. Now, Jericho was a significant location in world history and it is a very significant location in the history of the children of Israel. At the time of Jesus, Jericho was a winter retreat or vacation spot for the cultural elites. The cultural elites. It was a place where people would go to get away from the pressures of Jerusalem. It was a place that Herod the Great, the king, uh, the king at the time, had built three different complexes with three huge ballrooms. He had aqueducts for water to run into this city. He had pools at the uh, complexes to bring the elite guests out of Jerusalem to vacation on the Gulf. Right? We leave Atlanta and go to the Gulf. To go to Jericho where they could vacation. It was originally given to him, by the way, Herod, when Caesar Augustus took over from Cleopatra and Mark Antony. If you remember this, when he captured the world, he then goes and looks at Herod and tells Herod, you can have Jericho as part of your territory. It was a beautiful place. Let me give you what one scholar says about the ancient Near Eastern Jericho. It was characterized by groves of feathery palms rising in stately beauty, stretched gardens of roses and sweet-scented Bassam plantations, the largest behind the royal gardens of which the perfume is carried by the wind. Watch this, almost out to the sea, which is the name given to the city. May have been used as the reason the name was given to the city, Jericho. Jericho means the perfume. It was the Eden of Palestine. It was the fairyland of the old world. I want to show you a picture of that time to give you a sense of what it could have looked like. This could have been Jericho in the first century. Jesus makes his way. I'm going to show you now modern day Jericho. I've been there. This is a picture of modern day Jericho. I want to tell you, you might not know this, people still live there today. Did you know it's the oldest continually inhabited city in human civilization? It's the oldest city in the world to be continually inhabited. It has a rich history because it has a, it's a trade route that leads into Jerusalem. Now, as a vacation spot for the wealthy that were associated with King Herod, Watch this. There were 12,000 priests that were stationed in Jericho so they could go in and out of Jerusalem on duty. So they would station them in Jericho and then they would send an echelon to go serve on duty and then come back. It's a beautiful place. Now here comes Jesus into the city. Now when he came in, he would have had a crowd of religious tourists who were coming up to celebrate Passover. Do you feel the tension? This is one of the larger events in all of Jewish history. There's swollen crowds everywhere. Jesus is making his way into the city. He's going through the city because he's got his face set like flint to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is coming for a showdown. Can you slice the tension with a butter knife? 
The, the, the crowds are huge. They're wondering, who is this miracle worker? What's he going to do when he makes his way into the city with all the cultural elites? The 12,000 priests. People are asking, hey, hey, I heard through the grapevine Jesus is coming to town next, next week. I, want, I wonder what happened. And the text tells us that the intention of Jesus in that huge city of priests and elites really comes down to one man. Verse 2 tells us that Zacchaeus was a wealthy man and a tax collector. Two things you need to know about Zacchaeus. He was wealthy and he was a tax collector. He had a lot of money and he was a tax collector. Now hear me, Herod had built the majority of his buildings through horrific taxation. He would literally be usurped and thrown over in today's world. Okay, He was known worldwide as the most aggressive builder who robbed his people to do the buildings. In fact, at the same time that this gospel was written, there's a group of people in leadership that went and appealed to Caesar. And they said to Caesar, "His tax, you need to get involved with Herod because his taxation is bankrupting our entire nation. Very, very, very heavy taxation. So the Jewish community hated Roman oppression and they really hated tax collectors. They couldn't stand... In fact, it was forbidden. Listen, a Jewish person could not become a tax collector. If you did, if you became a tax collector, you were removed from synagogue life. So good luck on your Jewish route anymore. You couldn't go to the synagogue. You couldn't be a part of the synagogue. You couldn't engage in worship at the synagogue. If you were a Jew, that became a tax collector. So here you have Zacchaeus, who's not just a tax collector. He is a chief tax collector. This is a multi-level triangle pyramid marketing level tax collector with a hierarchy of oppression where people underneath them and he, Zacchaeus, would have made money off of each layer underneath him. He would have pulled more and pulled more and pulled more and extracted more money and more money from the people that were underneath him. What's the fruit of it all? He was sitting at the top of a system that extracted wealth against the commandments of God, against what God said to do to people. And yet, even in the midst of this, he's profiting personally. From the oppression of Jews. Now the elites would have loved him. Elites helped him. I mean he helped the elites to to make their money. But the people hated him because he betrayed God's people. And the text tells us the second thing. He was well, or third thing. He was wealthy, a tax collector. And he was short. Now I don't know what this condition has to do with the text. He was so short. Well how short was he? Well so short that whenever he sneezed his head hit the ground. So short that when he jumped off the toilet he broke his leg. So short that when he smoked pot, he couldn't get high. You know? Okay, I won't belittle him anymore. Okay. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree. Okay, you got a bad guy up in a tree. What did he commit? Treason? Look, y'all, I'm just branching out a little bit of my humor. Okay. Going out on a limb, one might say. Okay, I'm done, seriously. Let's go back to the Bible. It's the root of our faith. I have three kids, y'all. I live for dad jokes. That's where I live. That's where I live, right? Can you believe I put those together right there? Yeah. I, I, I don't know what condition he had, but listen, the Bible's very clear that God uses his physical characteristic, and God used his physical characteristic in his salvation. He tried to see Jesus, and he couldn't see Jesus. He was short. I don't know what his reputation was. I tend to think that maybe he thought if Jesus comes and beats the Romans and dismantles the taxation system, he's at the top of the taxation system, so you might need a word in with the dude ahead of time. Okay, You might need to talk to him, might need to get to know him, might need to understand what he's about. So he couldn't see Jesus, so he goes on ahead, and what does he do? He positions himself up a tree. 
I want to show you the picture of the tree of Zacchaeus. It's still there today. Now, obviously, it's not the tree, but I'll give you an idea. This is still in Jericho. It's called the tree of Zacchaeus right there in the middle of Jericho. Gives you a picture. Now, this is happening in spring, Luke 19. So the, the tree would have been full of leaves. And so we don't think he was trying to get Jesus' attention. We think he was trying to get a glimpse of Jesus out of curiosity. I tend to think he was thinking, who is this man who is the friend of sinners? I heard through the grapevine, through Twitter, that he has an ex-tax collector in his group of 12. I don't know what's going on, but I'm a little bit curious to got to get eyes on him. What's actually, who could it be that the rumors are true? True. Now, you got to understand, it would have been a social stigma for a man like this to climb a tree. Children climb trees. Here he finds himself, though, in a tree. And Jesus, the Bible says in the text, walks past the tree. This is what the text says. And when he got to the spot, he turns and looks up at Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus identifies him, calls him, never met him, calls him by name, says, you got to come on down, for I must stay at your house today. The Greek there is an imperative. I must stay at your house today. And something extraordinary happens, church. A, Jesus notices him. In the city filled with crowds of pilgrims, Jesus sees this one man, identifies him by first name, names him, and talks to him. B, Jesus doesn't just recognize him. He invites himself into his house. And he doesn't just come in. He eats with him. Hear me, church. To eat with a tax collector is to violate every sacred boundary every religious leader in the Israel's history had set out to define God's people as holy and to keep them away from the worldly people. And Jesus eats with him. And he stays there. What's the result? The people grumble. Ah! He's gone to eat with a tax collector. Now, many of us, we're very familiar with this passage, so what happens is we, we, we trivialize this passage. So let me, do, let me do something. I'm going to tell you a story that can hopefully, in modern context, let you feel the weight of what just happened in Luke 19. I've heard it put this way before. Imagine a guy named John. John is an enormous hedge fund manager. Dude's immoral in his ethics. He's very immoral in his financial dealings. In fact, in his financial dealings, it helped to trigger much of what happened in the 2008 economic collapse. There are rumors that John abuses drugs. He certainly has been laundering money. It's just now come out in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that he's alienated from his family. They just started giving, we started hearing rumors of sex abuse with underage girls at nightclubs down in Atlanta. He's been there. He's doing stuff that you just cannot do, especially as a high-functioning citizen. He's rotating through live-in girlfriends. He lives in a big mansion in Midtown. He's been there for about two decades. I'll give you a picture of him just so you can kind of think about who this person is. You got that picture of John real quick? This is John, okay? So, all right, you can take that back down. I just had to do that, okay? So, John lives in Midtown in this big old mansion, all right? And he's a ton of money. He's totally disconnected. He's hated by almost everyone. When he goes into town, some people love him because he helped them get rich, but most people swear against him for the financial damage he did to them and did to the poor and needy in 08. So an article got released about him in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. But here's the thing. John grew up in church. He knows the stories. He knows about God. He just lost his way. Strangely enough, Pope Francis of the Catholic Church is coming to Atlanta. He's doing a tour, and he's got a meeting with the World Council of Churches. 
Much to our surprise, for whatever reason, he's traveling through and something stirs in John's heart. He gets wind of it. Something stirs in his heart about his childhood faith and so he goes downtown but he puts a hoodie on because he doesn't want to be recognized. So he puts a hoodie on and he gets downtown in the midst of the crowds and he doesn't want to be known but he realizes his best chance to get a glimpse of Pope Francis is at Olympic Park, Centennial Olympic Park. He knows there's a big grassy area in front of the world of Coke before you get into the aquarium and he thinks, you know what? This is the pathway of the Pope. So you know what? I'm going to get there. So he gets down there. There's large crowds everywhere. Now there's a problem. John's 5'4". John has absolutely no ability to see over the crowds in front of him. And so he goes and climbs up a light pole. He sees at a distance at the top of the light pole a fanfare of all the Pope is coming through Georgia Tech's campus, making their way south on 75 and about to get off the exit. And then all of a sudden the Pope comes and walks by him and stops right in front of him and the whole crowd shuts up. The sound goes quiet. He looks up and everybody's like, what's about to happen? And Pope looks up at John on the light pole and says, hey, John. Good to see you. Hey, God told me today, John, I'm going I'm to come to your mansion in Mintown. Get on down. Y'all, can you imagine the crowd? This is a security nightmare for the Pope. An absolute security nightmare. What about the world leaders at the council? Oh, the Pope just going to say, sorry, got held up. Guy, hedge fund manager, went to his mansion, hung out with him. All world leaders have traveled from all over the world. They're here in Atlanta. It's time to have a meeting. Yet in what seems so inappropriate in our minds to give this kind of mercy and attention to someone, that's exactly what happens. The Pope goes to his house, arrives at the mansion in Midtown, meets all the girls at the mansion, And he starts eating sushi with John. John and he eat amazing sushi. And through this amazing conversation, what happens? He's completely transformed. And in one week, John opens up a 501c3, a total nonprofit. He gives away 50% of his wealth to others. He publicly goes on Atlanta News and asks forgiveness for everybody he's done wrong. And person by person over the next week and company by company, he goes back and he gives them back their money. The next Sunday, he comes to church And the following Thursday, he joins foundation phase in growth phases. Now, you know what people would say? What a waste of time for someone as important as the Pope to give to one man. Yet here is God on the earth walking around in a city filled with what? 12,000 workers in the temple. And Jesus does not go to them and say, Hey, I appreciate you serving me in the temple and giving your life for me. He goes and finds the least likely person and comes to his home and offers him salvation. Mind-boggling Luke 19 is. This is what happens. Zacchaeus gets saved. He has public repentance. And Jesus makes the declaration, Today, salvation has come to your house. And then he really says something crazy. He said, this man too is a son of Abraham. This salvation is extraordinary. I want you to see this, church. Jesus does not say to Zacchaeus, hey, Zacchaeus, you're in trouble with God. Did you know you're in trouble with God? You violated all the commandments of God. Did you know this? Did you know you've oppressed his people and taken from his people? Did you know? Listen, God calls you first, Zacchaeus, to go give all of your money away. And then secondly, I want you to make it right with them and then come see me and I'll believe you're serious. And then you can have me in your house when you've proved it with your works that you really, really want me. No, no, there is no works requirement in front of the invitation. It is extraordinary. Next slide. Listen to me, church. Radical Acceptance led to radical repentance. It was not the other way around. 
It was not radical repentance and then you're radically accepted. It was you're radically belonged to me, you're radically accepted among me, and it's going to lead to your radical repentance. And Jesus invites him in, and what happens? He now does more than the law requires of him. He makes himself right. And Jesus says, this man is showing what has happened in his heart, not earning a new heart. What he's doing with his money is now showing the fruits of salvation, not earning salvation. That is the beauty of Jesus, of salvation. Now, there are many famous paintings of this scene because it's such a potent scene in the Gospels. I want to show you my favorite one. It's one by an artist by the name of Palmer, and he titled this painting, Christ Calling Zacchaeus. Now, what I love about this is this is the only painting that, that Zacchaeus, that shows, uh, painting of Zacchaeus, that shows Zacchaeus coming down. And here he is descending like it's too good to be true. All the other pics show Jesus looking up or Zacchaeus looking down. But this painting gets at the heart of salvation. What is that? It's a sinner saying yes to the scandalous mercy of God. That's the heart of salvation. That's the good news we carry. And Jesus calls him the son of Abraham. Are you kidding me? Do you know what he does when he calls him the son of Abraham? He, next slide, is literally resetting the entire terms of the covenant. And says the covenant is not about how faithful you are to the law. The covenant is how well you reckon salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what this covenant is about. That's the covenant I'm giving my blood for. And he gave him a new name. And he gave him a new, new name. And that new name actually means righteous. And Jesus redeems him so that he can live up to his redemptive potential in God. And Jesus invites him in. And he's given a new place for the community of God. Listen, Jesus sets the boundaries of his acceptance. Because he looks at every other Jew and tells him, You must let him in the synagogue now because he trusts me. Don't you throw that man out the synagogue anymore. He trusted in me. He called him a son of Abraham. What's even more extraordinary is that in church history tells us that Zacchaeus would go on to become a bishop. He would be one of the most faithful bishops in the first century. God would take a notorious sinner, tax collector, make him a significant leader to be replaced only by Cornelius as the next bishop who is also an outsider. In the second Gentile convert in Acts 10. Y'all, salvation is radical. Salvation is radical. It is by grace, not by works. God simply says, respond, and in doing so, give your life to me. And in doing so, you get a new identity, you get a new standing, you get a new future, you get a new inheritance. Who else in the world offers salvation like that? No one. I want to say to you today, I don't know how you got here today. I don't know why you're here today, but I'm glad you did. And I don't know your story of every person in this room today. And I don't know every challenge you're facing today. But out of all places in human history, and all times in human history, God has you here this morning while we're talking about this man's salvation because God sees you too in the middle of Atlanta, and he offers you salvation today. And all you have to say is, come on in. Come on in. I respond to your grace. Maybe you're not up a tree. But maybe you're staying up late at night watching YouTube debates. Trying to determine whether this Jesus thing really is real or not. Maybe, maybe you're reading books. Can I tell you what God would say to you today? Jesus is saying to you, would you come down from your place and tree of interest and observation and come to intimacy and relationship today? Will you let Jesus in?
What will you do with Jesus today? And Jesus finds the one sinner and he welcomes him in and does not meet with the 12,000 priests in the city. Y'all, this shows us how far God will go. And it shows us how holistic and how transformative and how powerful salvation is that he offers to the lost. Now, I know this is a familiar story, but it stirs up several implications for our church about how we should respond. Can I give them to you today? How should our church respond? Number one, we as a church have to reclaim the heart of Jesus that we somehow lost in 2020 or 2021 for those who don't yet know him. We have to reclaim the heart of Jesus for people who don't yet know him. Jesus is still seeking and saving the lost. Are we? Are you? Now, I've been a pastor for almost over 15 years now. Can I just, I want to be frank with you. People come into churches and people leave churches all the time for all kinds of different reasons. Some of that is what we call the the natural transience of a place. Some leave, some stay. I want you to hear me, church. Some people leave because they develop theological traditions or convictions or ethical convictions that are different from our church. And honestly, can I just say to you, I can respect that. I can respect that. But I want to tell you this. That's not why most people leave churches in my experience. I've had people over the last seven years leave our church over worship style. I've had people leave our church over small groups. I've had people leave our church over kids ministry. I've had people leave our church over the size of our rooms of kids ministry. I've had people leave our church over women preaching here. I've had people leave our church over how long I preach. I've had people leave our church over how long Pastor Chad preaches. I've had people leave our church over everything. But can I tell you something real quick? Not once in pastoring in 15 years has anybody ever come to me and say, I'm leaving your church because not enough people are coming to Jesus. Not once, never has that happened. Now, I want you to think about that. When we are talking about our preferences for why or why we do not commit to a church, not one time has anyone said to me, I'm leaving the church because you didn't love the lost like Jesus does. That tells me that the entire evangelical Christian system in America has been oh so overtaken by preferences and consumerism that it's not even in the typical person's mind whether the church should be effective in the mission of winning Jesus or people to Jesus or not. It doesn't even enter in our minds as the top five reasons of why we should stay or leave a church because we are that consumeristic. We are that preferential driven in our church options. It doesn't even come into our minds that we should be faithful to seek and save the lost, to go after people who are far from God. And this is what Jesus said in Luke 15 verse 7. He says very clearly, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. It doesn't say people who just show up at events. It says people who really repent. People who literally have a life-changing encounter with the grace of God in Christ. And you know what I thought this week, church? This is what I thought. I don't want to be a church. And God looks at us and says, man, I love you guys in your prayer culture. People in growth. So I want to call us unapologetically this March both corporately and individually, to consciously, it's conscious, reposition our lives in alignment with the mission of Jesus in 2022. I want to show you something that has been very helpful to me. It's 
by a missiologist named Christopher Wright. And he writes and shares something called the missional continuum. I'd like to show it in a visual because I hope it hits you fresh. It certainly did me. It's a very simple idea called the redemptive edge. It basically says all of us today tend to, by design or by default, position our lives somewhere along this missional continuum. And what happens is once we're there about a month, we start to get comfortable and that's where we live from. So on one side is a place of comfort, then on the other side is eases for a moment. The ministry of Jesus, when you look at it, remarkable ministry happens in the place of criticism and darkness. You'll be amazed. Can I list a few of them? I don't have time to give you them. Okay, think of criticism. He was sketchy disciples. He had rules in religion. He's found with a woman in adultery. Everybody leaves but him and the woman. What about the place of darkness? He goes to Samaria. Don't you dare go to those half-breeds, John 4. Don't you go to that place of darkness. The demoniac in the region of the Decapolis, or what we call the region of the Gerasenes, where he liberates the man. The, the Great Commission. Where's your boy Zach? Where's your boy Zacchaeus? He's in darkness. No one in Jericho said, oh, let me think. Who would be up most open to salvation today? Oh, Zacchaeus. Yet Jesus always had a knack to go meet people in the darkness. To seek and save the lost from the darkness. Now, let me, let me show you something. This next slide is what happens when you just let life happen to you. Okay? If you're not conscious of it. Look at me, church. When you let the modern Western American church offer you, and desires are met for you and your family by programming and what you need out of a church and what you think you need, you live right there. That's where you'll set your life. And listen to me, church. You'll set your life not because you're bad, but because there is a conspiracy to evangelistic mediocrity in the world. Everything is trying to get you out of witnessing and sharing the gospel. So it will cause you to settle. Here's what I want you to see. Barely, if any, of Jesus' ministry happens here. It doesn't happen between comfort and caution. So if my my life is comfortable and cautious... probably not going to seek and save the lost. I remember Chuck Swindoll years ago, powerful man of God, got up in front of a lot of young pastors in Atlanta. And he told them at a Catalyst conference, he said, I know you young bucks, you're trying to get your strategy and your connection points. And there's so much hope for the future and so many wonderful leaders. But he said, I want to warn you now. One of the worst things that can happen in a city like Atlanta with new churches is that you get Christians in a small group right away. Now you can imagine the pushback on that. What about the book of Acts, brother? What about the one another's? He said, oh, I get it, I love it. He said, but the worst thing you can do is have Christians come from another church and come here and get in a Christian community and then they isolate themselves from the lost in your city. And he said this, and I'll never forget it. It is almost impossible when someone finds true Christian community and start getting their family and their emotional needs met to pry them back out of that into missional relationships with the lost. And so he said, be very careful about setting Christians into places of community too soon. Now, I don't even know if I believe that. I don't don't even know if I agree with that. 
but what a thought to challenge and wrestle with. You know why? Because in our last year, I look and I see, oh, maybe he had a point. I want to be on the edge. You want to be on the edge? The redemptive edge of criticism and darkness? I know in your heart, look at me, church, I'm not trying to shame or condemn anybody. I know in your heart you do not want to go to your grave and never see someone follow Jesus because of your witness. You do not want that said in your eulogy. I know there are people you care about. I know there are people that you ache to see them follow Jesus. And this is the year I'm calling us to re what reposition ourselves to do something with that. I love this great quote from Mother Teresa. Would you hear it with me? She said, may God break your heart so completely that the whole world falls into it. You know why we need the whole world to fall in our heart? Because that's the size of love God has. And the gravity, y'all, listen to me, church. The gravity of selfishness is so strong in America that, listen, unless that love for the world fills our hearts, our hearts won't ever be broken and we'll never have time for lost people. We'll never cry and weep for lost people. We'll never even feel emotions and compassion for those that are far from God. Because the lure of selfishness is so strong. We have to have God break our hearts that the world falls in. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And before I close, I want to say a few things. We have to understand what Jesus teaches about lostness. Let's talk about it for a minute. What are the stakes? Now, I think we think, sometimes we think, oh, I think most people are happy apart from God. Can I just say, most people aren't happy, period. Not at nighttime. No, goodness gracious. When they're laying their head on their pillow at night in America, they are not happy and content. When they're asking questions about, is this all and this meaning, this is my life, they are not happy. People are not happy. People have deep frustrations, the angst and anxiety. We're going to minister. We're going to evangelize this Friday night. You can meet here at 630. We're going to go to downtown Woodstock, and we're going to evangelize person to person. Talk to them, share the gospel. Right? Street evangelism. And it's amazing because when I go to downtown Wichita, you can see people that, it, I've been here long enough, that no matter the veneer of how they feel like they're having fun and their friends, their lives suck, and I know it. That's why I can't be convinced of it otherwise, right? Underneath all that veneer is anxiety and brokenness in their marriages and brokenness with their kids and all kinds of fear and all kinds of worry about the future and all kinds of uncertainty. And I think, see the world says, hey, just get ahead, consume what you want, it won't hurt you. But I think right now in our nation, people are secretly haunted by Jesus' simple statement, what good is it if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? And people are like, hey, I've been buying into a lie for the last decade that if I give more and more and more, I'm going to be content. And they're less content. They're struck, they're haunted by the thought of I can get everything and lose my life, lose my family. So people may often look happy, but they're miserable. So we must not look at people and fall into one of two traps. Let me give you the two traps we fall in. Here's the first trap. We think, oh, they're fine. They're good. Here's the second trap. Ah, they won't ever be interested in salvation. Now look, if we fall into the first trap, they're good. Here's what we'll do. We'll think they're happy, so we'll go back to religion and give them religion to try to make themselves feel guilty about themselves so we can give them the gospel. Oh, and I see this happen all the time. If we wrongly think lost people are happy, we won't give them the gospel. We'll give them religion to make them feel condemned. 
make them feel unhappy, then we'll come back and give the gospel. If we fall into trap number two, what ends to happen? We think no one's interested whatsoever. I know this sounds so easy, church, but we must view people as genuinely lost and separated from God and needing Him. That's how you have to view people. Genuinely hopeless and needing direction. And we must write no one off. Let's listen to what Brother Lecrae says. You know what Lecrae says? This is what Lecrae said. He said, rather than thinking about the world in categories of simply good and evil, a biblical worldview helps us think in categories of good and redeemable. Do you have that imagination, free people? Do you think, hey, I wonder who you could be in the kingdom of God if Jesus redeemed your story? Do you walk through your workplace and look at somebody and say, I wonder who you could, who could they be in the kingdom of God if God redeemed their story and granted them salvation and forgave their sins and gave them a new identity and set them on a crash course with a collision of their destiny and found their giftedness and were deployed for the kingdom? Who could they be in their redemptive potential? Who could they be? So there's a growing study about evangelism in America by a research agency called Barna. If you're not familiar with Barna, Barna is the premier research, Christian research organization in America. I want to tell you what Barna has just released. This is what Barna said. Almost all practicing Christians believe that part of their faith means being a witness about Jesus. 95 to 97% say all age groups, we need to share Jesus. And that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know Jesus. 94 to 97% of practicing Christians in America say that. Then, next point. Almost half of millennials, that's me, 47% agree at least somewhat that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. Do you see the conflict? 100% of people say, oh, best thing happened is share your faith, except it's wrong to do it. Next paragraph, I don't have it up there, but next paragraph says this. They say millennials and Gen Zers, that's 12 years old, 13 years old to 38 years old. Not Gen Alpha, but 12 year old to 38 year old in America right now. They say are literally the most strategic place generation in Christian history because the typical person has at least four other people in their life who practice other faiths. And yet they're the least likely generation to bring the gospel to the people they have access to that their future or past generations pray to have access to. Here's what I want you to understand. You are believing a lie if you don't think people are trying to convert people to their faith. I, every Muslim I have ever met tried to convince me to be a Muslim. Every Muslim I've ever talked to tried to convince me that the Quran is greater than the Bible. Advertisers every day are trying to convert your interest into sales for their tunnel. Politicians are by the moment trying to convert you to their political party. Everybody is trying to convert you. The question is not... Do we live in an age of conversion? The question is, is it good news? And what happens when you do convert to it? And the gospel church is good news. And here's what we bring to the table that no other world religion brings to the table. And it also answers the cry of the human heart. Here's the two core things we bring to the table. No one else brings to the table. Number one, we bring to the core table or the table, the core idea of the beauty of humanity. People are beautiful, are they not? Sometimes I just step back and look at people, and I'm thinking, how beautiful are people? How awesome are people? I mean, how complex and intricate and amazing are people? 
How amazing are you people? How much does my heart feel for you people? How grateful am I when I ponder and I think about the beauty of what God is building together in this tapestry, in this fellowship? People are beautiful. People are made in the image of God, folks. No matter how messed up they are, every human on the planet has intrinsic dignity and value and is worthy of the utmost respect and value because they're made in the image of Almighty God. We get that. But the second thing Christianity brings to the table is also the brokenness of humanity. Which means there are parts of us where, listen, we do things that produce profound regret and shame. And we can't live up to our possibilities. So watch this, ready? Some religions tell you about the beauty and ignore the brokenness. Several religions tell you about the brokenness and ignore the beauty. It is only Jesus. In fact, church, I defy you to go find me another world religion leader other than Jesus who literally looks at people and says, Even though you are broken, I see your beauty and I will save you. There's no one like Jesus. That's what we bring to the table and share in the gospel with people that are hurting. The beauty of their life and yet the brokenness of their life. And the recognition that we have the answer to the satisfaction that's the deepest satisfaction and contentment in their hearts. The Bible says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Look at me, church. I have a conviction that God will arrange history around faithful harvesters. There is no harvest problem. There is a worker problem. Jesus' prayer in heaven this morning is not for the lost. His prayer is for more people in Cherokee County to care and get involved. To care about the lost. To reorient our lives around a mission. Dawson Trotman, he founded the Navigators. If you're familiar with them, he tells a story that always haunts me. As a young man, he made a vow to God and he, he said, I will never put my head on a pillow at night without at least sharing Jesus with one person every day for the rest of my life. Some of you are like, oh, that's legalism. I'm like, hey, what's your freedom producing? Is your freedom helping you in your evangelism? I don't care if it's legalism or not, to be honest with you. Go tell people Jesus, share Jesus with them. So one night he's exhausted. I mean, he's laying down in his bed, he's dog tired. And the Holy Spirit says, Dawson, you didn't tell anybody about Jesus today. He says, oh, well. He tells the story of getting up out of bed and putting his clothes back on. He just goes out and walks into the street. Starts walking around the city. He bumps into a man. The man, you can see, is disheveled and... Something's wrong with him. He said, excuse me, sir, what, what, are, you, what are you doing here? The man said, uh, I, my heart's been wrestling like for weeks. I've been wrestling just in my heart. Like it's asking even myself, is there a God? And like, is there purpose in life? And is there meaning in life? And I'm experiencing pain that I never really asked for. And Dawson looks at him and he says, boy, do I have good news for you. Are there people in Atlanta last night going to bed? Saying, does, does anybody see me? And is there a God? And, and if he's there, does he care? Boy, do we have good news for him. Here's our call. 
Next slide. We have to be willing to pray for the lost, pray for laborers, and pray for divine encounters. So position yourself as someone that God can use and direct people to. Church, will you pray this year? Will you pray? Do you get, Craig, who should I pray for? Well, do you ever get a burden for someone in your heart that you just cannot escape? You meet them one time. Right? You know what I'm talking about? You meet them. And God just gives you this kind of overwhelming burden, right? It's like a true mantle to pray and intercede for them. So I'm going to tell you a quick story. Come on, Jesse. I'll tell you a quick story. My wife and I, before we moved here to Flint, we pastored a church, uh, a young adult ministry, high school young adult ministry called Elevation in Chad, uh, Cleveland, Tennessee. And um, I had come from a church called Free Chapel where in our youth ministry we had like 27 different schools represented. And when we moved to Cherokee, uh, Bradley County, it was awesome because you're on three main high schools. you got 100,000 people in, in Cleveland, Tennessee. And 100,000 people is three main high schools. And I remember going into the church, <clears throat> and from the outset, I remember having a clear prayer. I'll never forget it. I said, God, I just need for you to give me one encounter to show me how you want to use me in these schools. And you say, why? Because you can't be a chaplain at all schools. I knew I had to invest myself, and so I didn't want to just do it where the least churches were at. I wanted to do it strategically where God had me. And so I remember praying, God, just give me one encounter. Is that going to be Bradley Central High School? Is that going to be Cleveland High School? Or is that going to be Walker Valley? And as youth pastor, I was, I was on campus all the time, I mean, all day, all day, on campus all the time. I had access to all the lunches. and I would do Bible studies, and I knew in order to engage, I needed to pick a school. So a couple of weeks passed, and it was the third Wednesday in September, and it was called Seed at the Pole. This is a Protestant movement where teenagers from around the United States will meet one hour before school on a Wednesday morning to pray at their flagpole for their, their classmates. And being a youth pastor, I had students at all three schools, and I'm thinking, this is going to be a challenge. How do I get all three schools to see all my kids leading, right? Because I was going to be proud as pie and take a video of them and send it to their mom and dad that they're praying and leading their classmates and stuff, right? And so I go to the first school, Bradley Central, and I get there about 6.50 in the morning, and we have some of our students leading, and they're leading in prayer. Wow, so cool. Hop in the car, truck, get over to Cleveland High School, and Cleveland High School, they're out at the football field, and they're praying, and a couple of our students are out there leading on the mic and leading prayer, taking video. I think, okay, now is the hard choice. I got to get back on 75, go way up to exit 27, get to Walker Valley before this ends. I tell them up there. I pull into Walker Valley. Walker Valley is a school that, imagine the stage is the school that had a half moon wraparound like this. And in the middle of that half moon, this is the car line. And that half moon wraparound, the, the center part there was grassy area with the flagpole running around. And so I got there and I walked up into the grass area and we there's about 100 students uh, in that half moon shape all facing away from the school to the to the pole and they're praying they have an ABL set up they got a system PA system up there and some of our kids are leading worship and guitar and they're praying and I'm just standing there just proud and excited for these students so it comes to the end and they said hey let's gonna take the last five minutes and we're gonna all gather at the flagpole and face the school so we're gonna leave our little half moon go up to the flagpole face the school we're gonna pray for our school and so they all get up next to the flagpole and uh, they turn and I didn't want to stand right here like let me stare you know line of sight of the school so I stepped over here too in the grass and this one young man got off the bus and these kids had been sheepishly like looking like what is going on because they never seen prayer like, what is what is happening here and so they, this one young man gets off the bus and he's, he's looking over and instead of going in the front door he, re, he goes over to the front steps of the school and he leans up his shoulder against the, the brick of a column and he puts his hand out 
And y'all, I wasn't like I was in the spirit on the Lord today. I wasn't even seeking out an opportunity, but I'm standing here on the grass and I'll never forget to this day. I looked over and as soon as I saw him, the Lord said instantly, I want you to walk over to that young man and tell him exactly what I tell you to tell him. I said, okay, cool. I'm like, okay, God, what do you want me to tell him? And he tells me, he tells me. So I go over to him. I put my, he's at his shoulder up against it. I tapped him on the shoulder. He looks up. I said, hey man, what's your name? He said, my name's Kevin. I said, Kevin, what's your last name? He said, Kevin Ledford. I said, Kevin, my name's Craig. I said, dude, I I know you don't know me. I've never met you, right? We've never met. I said, you don't know me from Adam. I said, I don't know how you feel about this. I don't know if you ever believe there's a God or not, but I serve a God. His name is Jesus. And I was standing over there in the grass and I looked over here and you were leaning up against the column and Jesus told me to come tell you something. Can you hear him tell you what he told me to tell you? And he said, no. I said, no. Jesus wants to be your heavenly father. Your everlasting heavenly father. And something happened right there that's never happened to me at that point in ministry, not happened since. I've had a lot of people cry. He didn't cry. He fell to his knees and began to shake and sob and put his head right into my stomach. Now these students are looking at the school and this guy's crying and I'm just trying to calm him and console him and let him cry it out. So he does, and I share the gospel with him. I said, Kevin, share the gospel with him. I said, what's going on? He said, my dad, one of my siblings, he abandoned us five years ago. And on the way to school this morning, I hadn't heard from him in five years. On the way to school this morning, he contacted me. He said, I've got done. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to do with your relationship. He said, I got here. I had no idea that anybody could see me. And this dude over here in the grass came over and told me, Jesus wanted to be my everlasting father. And he gives his heart to Christ. While the kids are praying in the pole over there, classmates, he kind of gets laying his student Jesus like right beside his disciple. Now, I had little faith. I honestly thought it would be a conversion that I wouldn't hear from anyone. He got my cell phone. I thought, ah, I'm not going to hear from him today. But I knew that day he is growing my love up at school. those kind of stories to happen all the time because we have rearranged our hearts and lives in the mission of Jesus we have filled with spirit sensitive to his call and sharing hope with people who so desperately need it next slide be willing to pray for the lost the laborers and divine encounters next slide speak to the Lord about the lost before you speak to the lost about anything Next slide. God invades these gathered environments and these sins and scattered servants. God doesn't ask the 
lost to come into the church. He sends the found into the world. That's his methodology. Next slide. If we immerse ourselves in the Holy Spirit without immersing ourselves in seeking the salvation of the lost, then all we do is we participate in the phenomena of the Holy Spirit, but we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. See, Craig, what are you saying? Here's what I'm saying. Next slide. Don't go through 2022 and do nothing. Make yourself available for God to be an embodied witness. Because next slide, church, lastly, there's only one thing worse than being lost. No one trying to find you. No one trying to see you. No one coming after you. So I ask the question, how many baptisms should a church like ours see each year? Can I give you an answer? More than ten. More than ten. We're going to celebrate those ten? Yeah. Heaven rejoices over one. We got 5.5 million people around us. More than ten. To open our hearts. So last two weeks ago, we took the family to the Great Wolf Lodge. It was the homeschooling week, so you had to has had something happen to us that's never happened. Many of you have heard the story because I haven't shared it. Eric hasn't shared it. We were at Great Wolf Lodge. It was the second night I met up one of our core values for this year is to be back up with old friends. That's what we said in December, so I called an old friend in January and said, hey, let's get together more. Here's my college roommate. Let's get our families together for one sermon. Took off for three days to Great Wolf Lodge. The kids get to play together. Never met each other. Each night at Great Wolf Lodge, they have these activities. Down in the main lobby, they have a PJ dance party at 9 o'clock. And it is legit. It is absolutely legit. I mean, the parents are out there more than the kids. You know, like, I'm like, if you throw in some 90s, we're going to be out there, right? And so we get back from a hibachi place where we took the kids out to eat. And we're coming back. We're like, hurry, hurry. we got to get in. It's about to be a dance party. And so Meredith and I come into the, the far end lobby. And it's me, Meredith. Knox, Marley, and Harper and we walk and Meredith says I'm going to stop at Ben and Jerry's real quick but I want you to take the kids on and Marley's like leading she is a dance fanatic she's like come on dad I can't wait anymore I want to get up to the front I got to see where the people are to dance and it's packed it's a huge lobby packed people and so I'm like okay come on come on so Marley come on I'm following come on Knox just go just come on you know Marley slow down Marley slow down I can't see you know and Knox and Harper kind of falling behind we get over there too and I stand off to the side and I said Marley go on in there so going in there, I'm going to keep my eyes on you. I'm going to get a good eye of where you're at. Knox wants to stay with me. He ain't getting involved in the dance party. He's a sixth grader. Right? And so I look, and Harper's like, oh, I want to go back to mom. I want to go back to mom. You know, I want to be back at the, with mom where she's at. And I said, no, you have to stay right here. And I turned to look again. And I turn, and Harper says, okay, I'll go ahead and go inside. I'll follow sister. So she gets right in and starts squeezing through. About 30 seconds pass. And I look and I see Marley dancing. And there is no Harper. I'm like, okay, this is, this is a little bit crazy. Okay, this is a little bit crazy. So I started feeling the panic. So he got in the bottom of my gut. And I can't get a hold of Meredith over there. And so I called Matt and his friends. I said, y'all get to the front door, lock the entire front door. I want you to create a barrier there of anything that can happen. Someone go out this side. And Meredith comes back and I said to her, hey, 
I, I don't know. I have no idea where Harper is. We can't find her. So Meredith and I go on a search and rescue mission. We literally, there's dancing going around us. There is all kinds of, all kinds of music going around. And we are one track mind. I'm looking. I'm like, Meredith, you hit that side. I hit this side. We're going. And finally, five minutes into it, we can't find her anywhere. We cannot find her anywhere. Now Marley comes back over. She realizes Harper's not there. She's crying. She's unconsolable. Knocks the older brother. took it on. He's like looking for his sister. Thankfully, Harper has been trained very well. She got lost. You know what she did? She went way over to the main desk and checked it. Walked behind it and got in a person. Told him my name's Harper. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.